Welcome to the channel. I'm your host for today, Claire Headley, and this is my next episode of Scientology Stories, in which I interview people about their experiences in Scientology, as well as how they got out of Scientology. No matter how you first heard of Scientology, we hope you will learn from these stories and that we can educate you in the language and abusive practices of Scientology along the way. And here's my important note. Whether you are currently in Scientology, a former Scientologist, or just curious about it, the bottom line is Scientology does not want you to hear these stories. So thank you for being here. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for helping us to educate people on the true nature of Scientology. My guest for today, back for part two, is my dear friend, Sasha Zabitnoff. And welcome back, Sasha. Hey, welcome back. <laughs> Happy to be back. Thank you. I appreciate your time. As always, uh, we had great, great feedback from um, part one of your story. So thank you for that. Um, and so when we were talking... Um, when you visited recently, you mentioned to me something fascinating that I thought was worth its own conversation, um, which is the presentation that you've been doing about Scientology for psychiatrists. Can you elaborate on this and give me the backstory as to how this amazing piece of work of yours came to be? Sure. Yeah. Um, I got to know Stephen Hassan, who wrote the book Combating Cult Mind Control. And that was a book that was very meaningful to me. And I had actually seen him a few times. I mean, I read the book and I actually had some, a couple of sessions with him and it was really a delight. And one of the things that he thought was really valuable is when you could help others as well. And I had, I had actually been with him to meet with other families that were navigating through the process of getting a parent, a loved one out of Scientology. So that was a really fascinating process. And he always kind of kept me in touch. And so I've been actually, if you look at my name, there is a video with me, Steve Hassan. Um, and he had uh, said he was doing this talk to psychiatrists about cult. And they had a, it was, there was a class around um, spirituality and psychiatry. And it's been going on for some period of time. And uh, I was invited to give a talk to this class. It was a, a fourth year residence. And this was so people that were interested in this. And I've been doing it for now 13 years since 2010. Wow. And it was a, it was absolutely a great. Well, first, it was a very scary notion because the idea of talking to psychiatrists who, per my thought police, these were evil people. These are people that I should not be anywhere near. Yeah. And so that that was but I, I recognized that this was actually an opportunity for me. And I, I took some time and I put together some slide deck and it's evolved through the years. And um, so what what we have here is after 13 years of doing the talk and there are certain things of how I sort of present Scientology, because these are psychiatrists that have never I mean, whatever their awareness of Scientology is, is varied. And I was looking to introduce them to Scientology, show them my story and then tell them what I had gone through as far as going, not only my personal story of coming out, but also what I, my process and thought process was of how people get in and the process of getting out. Um, so, and then what my, where I stand with Scientology today. And usually it's about an hour long session, but it's been, been great. Nice. Yes. And we will go through that today. Thank you very much for being willing to share this. But before we do, I'm curious. So what, what was most helpful to you to even be able to approach the, the thought of psychology and psychiatry potentially being helpful or a resource? Boy, well, there have been times where I've been in a place of a challenging spot. I mean, when I was married with my first wife, um, I remember we actually went to see us. We were looking like we needed help. We needed counseling. And the counseling we found, they were very well uh very well recommended. And he happened to be a psychiatrist and, uh, and he was incredible. And we, and I, I would always say, first thing, you're never going to give me drugs. Don't give me drugs. And I was mm -hmm. very clear about that. And that was like, okay, you know, we don't have to give you drugs. Don't worry about that. And, uh, and then it was just about more like general talk therapy, as you might say, and which kind of like going through any auditing session, although it wasn't using the same prescribed method as, as auditing, but it was me sort of sharing my story and kind of working through it. And so I'd gone through a number of sessions with psychiatrists and I found them to be valuable in their own right. There are certainly times where I could 
I mean, it was interesting for me as I was going through it because I actually did miss auditing. I missed that experience because I did enjoy getting to the level of clear with the auditor that I had. But I also could appreciate, and particularly that that psychiatrist that helped me through my divorce with my first wife, whom afterward, because um, he, he and his wife saw us as a couple through couples therapy, they were they were they were very very costly. But it was certainly for me. I didn't care. I really was for me. It was about saving the marriage as best we could. And she, they actually, we had to come through a conclusion that our marriage was going to fail, and that was. And they actually helped walk us through that process. And uh, which was probably the worst state of depression I'd ever seen. And I and I said to him, I said, "Listen, I'm broken. I need fixing, and I'm going to see you. And I don't care what it costs. I will spend whatever it takes." And I and I took judicious notes, really, to help myself try and redefine who I was or who I wanted to be. And so that was a powerful process. And actually, in that time, while I was seeing him, and I was trying to figure out how to date again, he said, you know, maybe I'll try mesh.com. And surely enough, when I did, I met my wife. And, and he was a very good uh, counselor for me as I was sort of navigating and finding my road back into getting back into a responsible, mature with boundaries. Because one of the things that I lacked quite a bit was a sense of boundaries. I mean, I was an open book. I mean, Scientology taught me, you know, that I should have nothing to, to hide from anybody. And so that was, and I believed in principle that that was, but it was clear to me that that wasn't doing me favors. Right. And so it was, it was just difficult. And certainly with my first wife, I was like, anything was open. And there are times where you, you do have a right to have your own private thoughts. And even in Scientology and outside of Scientology, you have that right. Yeah. And that was something that was helped me. And so anyway, that's a little bit of the backstory of me becoming more comfortable with psychiatrists. And then when Steve Hassan said that here's this group of psychiatrists for me to chat with or speak with and tell my story, I remember speaking with the woman who was running it and asking what they were looking for. And they were kind of basically said, this is your show. We are just curious. We want to hear and learn. And you tell us anything you want to say. We want to learn from you. Um, and so we give you this, you know, this opportunity to, to whatever you want to do and say, so I took it. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And and it's interesting. No, it's, it's fascinating because, um, as, so I'm, I'm going, um, have several times been in therapy, including now. And I always go, well, I don't know necessarily as someone who's born into Scientology, I, I don't, I don't have a list of like, oh, here's my here's my um, potholes. Here's my, you know, the things that are tripping me up. I don't, I, I mean, I know what some of them are for sure, but what's to say, how, how, you know, what's my roadmap that goes, okay, the, these are the things I need help with. What I think I need help with is not necessarily what someone else might think I need help with. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure everything's different. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if for as a second generation, I mean, I'm just sharing my own story. I mean, you know, I mean, I've come to know you and I think you're a great person, but I know for me, it was that sense of boundaries. And one of the things that that psychiatrist was really good with, because I was trying to figure things out. And my first wife, it was all this drama up and down and kind of craziness. And um, and then I met Helen, who didn't have that level of drama. And I was almost like, well, wait a minute, that's maybe that maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I because I fe- felt like that drama was like this incredible excitement that I should have. And that was mm-hmm. something that was missing. And I remember sharing that with the psychiatrist. And I literally was like questioning, do I go forward? And he said, you know, I've heard you tell your story. And he says, you, you can do whatever you want. I mean, this is your life. But I'll tell you for me, as somebody who's listening, I'm in the sidelines, but I'm here to support you. And it's whatever you want to do. But if you give me a vote, I would say, I'd go with Helen. I'd go with Helen, <laughs> who became because she's got a sense of boundaries. She's got a she's re- represented herself in a way that sounds mature and has all these things, which was foreign to me. And yeah. it was sort of and it was and he was sort of showing like this is going to be foreign for you, and it was and it was sort of and, and the beauty is is that I mean we've been now married for twenty plus years and I've been able to fall even more in love with her than I was when I met her, and that's yes. been just phenomenal. Not something I expected necessarily. But that was, and I've been, you know, and I've got my flaws and she's been great at helping to accept me. And, but that, that was where with my first wife, it was all about the drama and it was all this excitement. It was all this intensity. And Helen didn't, 
I mean, we can have our own level and our own on our own terms, but not in that kind of way with, you know, the stakes were so high. I mean, it was always like, you know, she, I mean, my ex-wife would throw her, her rings at me and saying, I'm done. It would just be this incredible, like, oh my God, everything was falling apart. And that was the way we communicated. And it was just awful. I mean, obviously I was with her and there was some intensity of incredible passion and all that stuff, but it, it just was that intensity. So Anyway, I don't, I'm kind of like way off on all different no, 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 tangents. It's all good. That was it's my all good. And and the reason I was asking too, specifically from the perspective of psychology and psychiatry, is because it's such a huge bridge to cross when you've been raised mm. with just the 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 statement of quote unquote fact, which of course is falsehood. That, like you said, psychologists and psychiatrists are evil, and that's it. Right. That's the beginning and the end of the conversation. When you're born into Scientology, it's just becomes like considering doing some terrible deed to even consider for a moment seeking help or seeking help from a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And so from my perspective, I'm always just interested to learn how people cross that bridge. So because maybe that would be helpful for others in the recovery journey of, um, on the the road out of Scientology, the road to happiness. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? <laughs> I mean, like Steve Hassan, who is a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist. He's not a psychiatrist; he's a psychologist, or he's got a psychology degree. And um, he was good, and it was also good because he knew Scientology, and that yes. helped me. Yeah, and he could speak the language. And he actually was somebody who met with my ex-wife, and he he was really like, if you're going to be married to Sasha, you're going to have to understand Scientology. And that was something that, because that was part of my definition. And he was actually able to represent that in a way I didn't know. Because my first wife was like, oh, I don't want to hear anything about that. I don't mm-hmm. want to know anything about this. This is, I don't want to hear about Scientology. And I kind of didn't care, but he was more like, no, that is part of your history. That's part mm-hmm. of who you were. And that helped me. Um, and then he actually had me go to support groups of other people that had left cults. And I don't know, there was some in Boston that I would go and visit and some of them I'm still friends with of uh, the people. I don't know if they still meet or if there's some iteration of that, but that helped. Um, and then like through work programs, they would have the employee assistance program when I was going through my divorce and that was sort of a free counseling. And so I'd see them and I'd get like eight sessions and those were, those were kind of good. And it was just this talk session and I didn't feel so bad because it was just talk. If it was... Like, oh, we're going to prescribe this and this, which is how I was raised to believe that that's what you do. You just, yeah. They're going to just tell you to do drugs. They're going to do electric th- shock, shock therapy. This is, you know, that's all that there's, that's the only tools in their box, yeah. which isn't the case and kind of being able to see that. But certainly for me, I'm much easier to say, we'll just do talk therapy. That's where I'm best. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I'm not in a place where I, I think I've needed to get um, psychiatric care or psychiatric medicine. Um, I know my wife does take psychiatric medicine and she's, that's helped her through her depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I respect that very much, yeah. but as somebody who was coming out of Scientology, I was like, well, that's, that's not for other people, but not necessarily for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. Fascinating. Well, with that, I will pull up your presentation and we can, I will give you the, uh, you'll be the driver. Just let me know as you want to move through the slides sure, here. Sure, Does that yeah. work? All Happy right, here we go. So. Hey, Scientology for Psychiatrists. This was a fun slide just for me to put together, just to actually put in Scientology and Psychiatrists on the same page mm-hmm. that in its own right was there. But this was, as I said, I was invited by, um, the, I think it was Brigham Women's, their fourth year psychiatrist residence to give this talk. And this was, it's a quite a a detailed conversation presentation, but so this is just the opening slide. We'll go to the the next slide. Um, This is typically I'd ask, what do they know about Scientology? And usually it's like Tom Cruise or John Travolta. And then it's about a lot of money or this or that, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what they know and it is curious. So I'm, and it's, it's just, you know, and interestingly, it isn't like they think of them as some like, like I, we would wonder, but do the psychiatrists look at Scientology as this evil like group that's trying to take them down? It's kind of like they were just sort of like a benign group that happened to be out there. It wasn't mm. something that they thought of in any sort of which, from a Scientology perspective, this is like the standoff between psychiatry and Scientology. Right. But that's all in the world of Scientology, but not in the world of psychiatrists, which was to me fascinating. That is I, fascinating. Yeah, I, you would think. Well, yeah, you know. 
think of who's Scientology battling. Well, of course, the psychiatrists. Right. And, and there's some big battleground and all these psychiatrists are manning the stations and ready to defend against Scientology. They really could care less. <laughs> they don't really care that much. I mean, they do care about people that are looking for help, people and people they do run into people that are out of Scientology. So anyway, this this would be a chance to sort of hear a little bit about it. And it would just be curious. Yeah. If you go through. So this is me, um, you know, 13 years on. I'm already. So when I first started, just as we started this conversation, my sense was like that this I'm in the dragon's lair. I mean, from that video game, you're like dragon's lair. And I'm like, oh, my God, the dragons are there and I'm going to be swallowed up. And then as time goes on, I'm just I just sort of am able to share my story. And it's like my annual psychiatric review of here's my story. And it's sort of that's how it's evolved. And this is how the, the slide has kind of been there. So anyway. <laughs> nice. Awesome. So I introduced my family. So you can see pictures of, and in this case, I, I have in the lower left, at least I'm looking at it. Um, there's me. Um, there's my mom, my wife by my side. Uh, we had an exchange student, my my youngest son's girlfriend, my in-laws, and my, my mom and um, my other kids. So it's a sweet little picture. Um, then uh, up above me is my mom and my stepfather. Sadly, my stepfather passed a few years ago and my father who also passed uh, back about six, seven years ago. Um, I play piano, not that tremendously well, but I do enjoy playing it. We do a lot of travel with my family. I do a lot of walks with the dogs. I play golf, but I'm not very good. And I also do yoga a few times a week. And then another piece about me is Scientology. And these are pictures of Delphi Academy or Apple School way back in the day. And there's a clear bracelet and uh, there's uh, the complex. So that's sort of a little bit about me and it's sort of going through. So anyway, next slide. All right. So here's my timeline, at least, you know, selfishly looking at the world as I knew Scientology. It started in 1950 when LRH um, published Dianetics and he had these talks at St. Hill in Sussex, UK. In the 70s, I'm born. Um, there's the LA complex comes to be uh, and Scientology seems to grow. And it is this great movement, actually. And if people there are, as I recall, I mean, and it was a very positive experience. I kind of enjoyed it. I enjoyed all the friends that I had. I enjoyed the place where I was. Um, in the 80s, that's when I mean, LRH dies and there's a transition. David Miscavige takes takes hold in 1986. And he ascends, you know, there was a lot of the patent any broker. There's a lot of stuff that was up lines, which I wasn't really keeping track of, but, you know, it was going on. Um, and then in the 1990s, I was, I went to, I lived in LA for a period of time and did my high school and um, I was in a car accident. And then I, I was went through a whole process of leaving. And then in the 2000s, I call it David, David Miscavige era, which really kind of probably started since the 90s. And then people speak out. And then you could see in this, you know, Leah Remini, you could see Mark Headley and several others that have um, spoken out about Scientology. This is a way that I look at it, at least in the world that it is. And my Scientology years are really from the 70s into the 90s. And that's, yep. that's all. All right. This is the complex. Uh, these are buildings that I knew extremely well through my childhood. Indeed, I at one point lived not far away. Some of my, be my best friends who were in the Sea Org lived on Fountain Street, which is not in this picture, but you can see it. And there's L.A. Day in the upper level. But it doesn't matter. This was I walked these grounds, the AO and whatnot. And over to the right is the Celebrity Center, which was a few miles away. And this was just the world that was very familiar to me. Nice. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting to me, by the way, unfortunately, our paths didn't cross until after we got out. And of course, as we talked about in part one, you knew Mark growing yeah. up. I almost ended up going to Delphi. Thank goodness I didn't. Well, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, I mean, I would have loved to have met you then, but uh, I think it's, it's you know, things end up the way they did. And we That's probably, right. I don't know, did you spend a lot of time in the complex? I did, uh, for, sp more specifically, 89, 90, 91. Yeah, so it yeah, was limited days. interaction where we were both on the same, because in 89, 90, I wasn't there as much. Yeah. Probably 86, 87, I was there quite a bit, and younger, because um, yeah, my mom moved out when I was fifth to eighth grade. But anyway, this, that's my little view of Scientology. Yeah. So this is, um, as I would share with psychiatrists, this is, as any Scientologist knows, the images of LRH are, these are the iconic 
views of him. These are the photos that you'd see around and all around him is this sort of this great yachtsman. And there was this bust of him that would be, you'd see around and you always see uh, a, an office dedicated to him, which was kind of looked like a museum space. You weren't allowed to go in it. It looked very pristine and this was, it would always was there. And that was just kind of, you were sort of, I guess, intentionally sort of somewhat awe-inspiring of, wow, this is the guy who made it all possible. This is it. And you were always like applauding to this picture. And that was how I knew him. That, and that's all that I knew aside from things that I'd heard growing up. Yep. Um, this is the bridge. So um, there is, this, this Scientology has a big thing about the Bridge of Total Freedom. Um, I had made my way up to the to clear, and that's Scientology's goal to clear the planet. So I'm kind of a big deal is that, in that respect. I got a clear bracelet, and and then there's also the, the training side and the processing side. And I went up the processing side. I did some training, but not as much. Um, and most people that spend money, they spend it on the processing side, but you can also spend money on the training side, which people are happy to do. And you spend money in both cases. And if you do the training side, then you can help others on the processing side. So that was. The, that's the story. Yep, absolutely. And I will say in later years, in I suppose in the David Miscavige era, it became much more mandatory that you had to do both sides. Oh, you had to do them simultaneously. Yep. Yeah, in my day, it was just, you just kind of could work your way up the processing side. I mean, I did my fair share of the training side, but I mean, I did the HQS, student hat. I did maybe a couple other things. But I was, we were, and we spent some, some good money, which I get into it later on in the presentation. Nice. Yep. Sure. That's coming. <laughs> this, this is the, um, the whole nomenclature, which is a word I learned when I was in Scientology or the language that we use in Scientology is it turns into this whole Scientologies and any Scientologist knows these words like amuse or misunderstood, ARC triangle, Cognition, suppressive person, upstat, all of them have meaning and they're all very specific within the context of what they mean within Scientology. And certainly me growing up, I loved this world because I could talk in a way around non-Scientologists and I got to be have this elitist feel of check me out. I can say these words. You don't know what that means, but I do. Ha, you know, wouldn't you like to be where I am? And that was it was sort of this weird kind of elitist feel. It doesn't, I mean, I now work in biotech where I can do that all left, right, and center. It doesn't really matter as you're just trying to get stuff done. But um, but that was part of the allure, I think, for Scientology and people in it. Hmm. Um, and then for those that are not Scientologists, as you know, they're called wogs or muggles, as <laughs> it would be in the in the uh, Harry Potter world. Yeah. But, uh, but wogs is what we use. We didn't use muggles, but it almost sounds similar. But that, that's kind of part of the whole process. Yep. I'm interested to ask, did you have the flip side of feeling that that this specific language isolated you in any way? Or did you not have that? As I was leave when I was in non-Scientology world, because like, when I was went back to New Hampshire, I couldn't use this language as much. So that was, mm -hmm. I, and I felt like that was a disadvantage that I had because I, nobody knew it. I, it didn't matter. I just... I couldn't speak it because it didn't have any meaning to anybody else. Yeah. Um, and then it was, as I was leaving Scientology, I had to learn how to filter my language. So I wouldn't, you know, like say a word like dev T, you know, and I'd have to figure out another way to say that word or, or what I meant by that. Right. You know, so I had to figure out how to reprogram my language, but I don't think I necessarily felt, isolated. I just had to learn how to communicate when I was with people that just really didn't know. And then yeah. that was just, and I had to sort of learn not to use that. I Like when I'm with you and Mark, it's easy for me to fall into using some of these references because I know, you know, exactly what that means. I don't even, I don't even think about it. Yeah. But I mean, Helen would, but she's certainly come up to speed on a lot of this stuff. So she's not at a loss either. So, uh, but that's, that's part of it. Yep. Interesting. All right. So this is just auditing as it was. And as I said, I went to the state of clear and you would use an e-meter. And in this picture you have uh, John Travolta getting, I'm sure it was just for a photo shot, but he's getting audited and he's holding these two cans and it's like a one ohm of electricity going through you. And there's that needle being sort of moving as you're sort of having these, whatever you're saying. And it's sort of a very crude lie detector of sorts 
But and as you've probably done quite a bit of auditing, I know I have. And I know, and I usually with a psychiatrist, I'd sort of share some of that story. Like people would say, like, tell me a time when you were afraid or you had something and you, you might have a story about, oh, I remember being a little bit scared this time. Okay. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I was at the Grand Canyon. Like, okay, tell me that bit more about that experience. Start talking about it. Says, tell me an earlier similar time. And you start, okay. And you start going to these earlier similar times. And then you're like, oh, there's this, and they, that's the one. What, tell me about that, that memory right there, right there. And they try to catch you at a specific spot and they're looking at the needle and you're like, Oh, I don't know. And you might sort of have, and I'm making this up like being on a high chair or something and falling off the high chair or whatever that is. And that could be theoretically your, your lock or what was it that finally made you afraid of heights because you fell off a high chair or something like that. And you forever since always had that fear, which is brought out in a lot of different psychiatric thoughts as well. And that, that, that same concept holds through, but that was auditing as I knew it and hmm. what it went through. Did you get a feedback from any of these presentations on what psychiatrists think about the e-meter? <laughs> um, they, I think they were more usually the, the come because I'm only given 50 minutes and they would probably just sort of, this would be a slide that I would give this talk. And usually as I go through, I would just kind of fly through it. Um, I mean, yeah, so we're, yeah, anyway. So, so not specific. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not to... Uh divert. There we go. So this is just the basic concepts. And this is for any Scientologist pretty clear, but it's the reactive mind, the analytical mind in Scientology. We are, we have both of those minds. And in, in Scientology, we're trying to rid ourselves of the reactive mind. And if I made it to the state of clear, theoretically, I'd no longer have that reactive mind. Um, and you're, the bank is gone or whatever that, and that was, and the bank is considered the reactive mind. That was sort of a shorthand for that. Yes. And, the, and that's, that was the goal. And since I'm clear myself, clear the planet, but that this was just sort of giving a bit of that concept so that they could see and understand it. Yeah. These are other concepts. There's a lot of these slides are going, they're going to be just general concepts, but the tone, tone scale and you kind of go up and down it. And this is just another sort of framework of communication that we have about being further up or further down. Um, and you know, you, we have a total, what is it? Serenity of beingness that had this kind of, or tone 40, people would use that term. And it just, this was all part of it. And this is the ARC triangle or the way to happiness. All of these are just general concepts, which were very much within the DNA of my language, as, a, as I'm sure you, you as well, and, and Mark, as being in Scientology. Yep. So part of it was that the community, the, the community and the crusade. I mean, we were constantly about doing something that's phenomenal. We're here to about make this world a better place. And that had its effect, infectious element to it. And you have these huge events going to the Shrine Auditorium or wherever it was, and you felt you were part of a larger cause. And that was that was a pretty cool thing. I did enjoy that. And I used to enjoy going to these different events because, like, hey, I'm part of this. And this is my community. And I'm one of them. And that was neat. And there's all these celebrities in it. I mean, People that I went to school with were were part of that. So it was just that was just part of the whole allure of Scientology. Yeah, I will say that one the the part um in your in the first interview that you and I did where you were talking about kind of that when you were starting to wake up to the sense, the false sense of community that existed specifically in the events, like when you were saying the the autom uh, automaton or the automaticity yeah. of like the standing up and clapping and the now you're supposed to and the yay and the this and the that, that really struck me and resonated with me. I'll tell you that. Right? <laughs> yeah, that was something that was part of the process of for me getting out. But in this yeah. case, for the pro purpose of the presentation, it was more of me sort of helping to share what what it's all about yeah no that makes sense so this is so scientology uh education was a big deal i went to delphi academy as did mark sky dayton was a big um uh, product of of delphi academy bonnie Urbisi, who i went to school with i was in a band with him at one point punky brewster went there and i myself was in the wonder years um so we all got to be part of this whole neat community which which i enjoyed it costs a lot of money. As I said, by the time I made it to clear, I spent about 30000 or so. So, and that was a common, I mean, and the, the figures here are way below probably to get an, a, a lifetime membership, I'm sure, as well over. I mean, when I did, it was 2000 
So I've got to imagine it's like five or ten thousand dollars to become a lifetime member or whatever it is. Or I don't even know if they do lifetime members. Maybe they just do annual now. Um, and I did have a card which I would hand out. I don't have it on me, but I used to give up my my uh, lifetime membership card. Hmm. Just looked like a credit card, but anyway. Right. Uh, so then there's the Sea Org, which both you and Mark are part of, and this is the billion year contract, which is certainly part of the um, what people do and join. And I know me as being one who was raised in it. Many people have tried, uh, approached me to join the Sea Org. I never had an interest to join, um, but I certainly talked to many recruiters, and uh, but I, I ne- just never decided to join. But some of this is it's a voluntary one year, one billion year contract, and it's all of this kind of huge message of how you're about saving the planet. And we come back, theoretically, people come back with after after life, they die, they somehow are reborn and say, oh, I'm checking in from past life. I don't know if anybody's done that, but that would be impressive. <laughs> no, uh, no one's documented as having come back yet. <laughs> so this is, and I was never been there, but this is the place where, where you guys were, which is Uplines in Hemet Springs. And um, this is the campus, which at this picture, it looks fairly good. It would, but to the right, you see the, the fence, which has the, the, not only trying to get people from getting in, but it's clearly also trying to prevent people from getting out. Yep. And that's sort of very telling about the sort of organization when you get up lines. And you and Mark know this well better than I do. But this was something that I would let the psychiatrist know. And actually, that whenever I presented, they make sure the teachers like notice those fence on, that that you're you're stuck in there. It is a prison. Yep. Um, then this is where the psychiatrists come in. You guys are the bad guys. Um, you know this is, and then that that picture of the stop psych uh, drugging or psych, psych drugging of children that easily could have been me. I would have happily been holding that sign, and, and I'm sure I've held signs like that many times. And with the psychiatry kills and whatnot. This is the industry of death, and this is just put into our heads ad nauseum about the, the horrors of Ritalin and everything like this. And this is just, you know, the, every cult needs a villain, and psychiatry is the villain, yep. which we were talking earlier on about how do you get over, over that. Yeah. The, the concept of PTSSP, which is a potential, potential trouble source or a suppressive person, um, this is a big concept. Any, any accident or illness is based on one's relationship to an SP. Or so that would make you a PTS. And for all intents and purposes, you know, the SP is like the Hitlers of the world. And every psychiatrist is a Hitler. I mean, they, they're all suppressive people. And one of the stories that I might share is that I remember going to Delphi one time on, I was asking my dad, I said, isn't it possible that a psychiatrist, unbeknownst to them, they're just good, well-meaning people. And they just didn't realize, they didn't realize the psychiatry was bad. They just innocently wanted to become a psychiatrist. Couldn't that be the case? And my dad thought about it and he just said, no, that couldn't be. And I was like, really? I mean, that just seemed to me like, come on. I mean, even if they're all bad, maybe they end up bad, but they certainly had to start good. Right. And and that was that was something that, you know, it's in, in the end of the day, I mean, I've met many psychiatrists and they're not bad people. They're fine people. They're just normal people like the rest of us. Yeah. But, but that's, that's the, that's the story here. Yeah. And Mark and I, as you know, are card carrying SPs. We have our piece of paper that we says we're declared suppressive persons. Yeah, that's right. And you're, you're doing all the, the horrors of the world, which is you're, you're working to stop Scientology, which uh, ironically, psychiatry is not looking to stop Scientology necessarily, but right. that's what Scientology would have you believe. Yeah. And by the way, I would just note though, the date of my piece of paper is uh, two days after I escaped. So therefore wow. my, uh, documented activities that were quote unquote now made me a suppressive person of stopping Scientology was the simple act of escaping. That was it. Oh, right. just leaving. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, <laughs> just as a, as a comment. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, that's absolutely true. And so these are the conditions and conditions are something that's very, uh, any Scientologist is well familiar with them. I certainly did my share of doing the conditions, which is you go to the ethics officer and you're assigned a condition, whatever it is, you know, treason or liability, wherever it is. And you're supposed to do these different things to work your way up the conditions 
to a higher level. Eventually you get yourself from danger, emergency, normal, affluence, power. But uh, here I point out that this that, that the enemy, which is the SP order or fair game, may be deprived of property or injured by any means, by any Scientologist, without any discipline of the, of the Scientologist, may be tricked, sued, or lied to, or destroyed. So this is really to bring home, which you guys have certainly experienced this policy in action. And this is really to bring home to psychiatrists that this is what's going on. This is the, these are practices that exist, even though, you know, Scientology actually denounces that this is still an active um, uh, policy that exists. But I, I think when Mark was clarifying that actually a lot of this language still does hold. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a body of knowledge and a practice within Scientology, not just one one document. There are thousands of documents <laughs> that talk about the ways in which to destroy, lie to. Oh, you know the the key key words that you just mentioned there. Yeah, M- muzzled. You know <laughs> all these other craziness. Yeah, Shall I go to the next tough. one? Uh, yeah, go to the next one. Okay. So this is the one where I get into, actually, I took some time to think of what is it that brings somebody into Scientology? And, and even though I was born and raised in it, but I've certainly seen people and what it takes and just sort of my own observation of somebody like my dad would be a good example. Prior to being in Scientology, it's you're sort of looking for some truth. You're looking for a community. You're looking for happiness. You're sort of wandering. You were sort of somewhat rudderless, sort of where do I find my purpose? And you're just not sure. And then you find this community and that's sort of surrounding around saying, hey, we've got the truth. We've got community. We're happy people. You can join us. We have this great infectious feel, that community feel. Everything is so wonderful. So you get to be part of that. So you join that and you're like, wow, this is phenomenal. And you get to be part of this. You're drinking the Kool-Aid. You're like, this is great. And all these people are wonderful. And then what the way I sort of think about it is you're going in that experience. You also find times where life happens and you find yourself in a difficult spot. But then you say, wait a minute, I have the truth. I have community. I'm happy. If I apply Scientology Tech 100% correctly, it works. And so I go back in and I just have to just retool my thinking. And then you get back into that group think and you kind of go in this sort of vicious circle where you sort of now get all this excitement. And then when things don't work out, then you go, oh, no, no, no. This has got to be something I've done wrong. I've got overs. I've got withholds. I've got something I don't understand. Whatever it is, well, let me correct that. now. Oh, and now I'm happy again. Aha. And you just reaffirm this sort of this is now I'm in this really happy place. And you kind of constantly stay in this sort of eddy of doing this. And many people that you and I have known are still in that place. I mean, I know people from from that went to Delphi that are still in Scientology and they're just living in this and they feel great about themselves. They feel they have the truth. They feel better than me. They or in their world, they've done this incredible thing. And yet I'm I'm happy to be I'm very happy to be out of it. And I wish I could help them get out, but but that's the world that they're in. Yeah. So that's what where the way I see it as far, sorry, as you get in. The next slide gets into how you get out. Okay. So this is where unfortunately the color in this doesn't work quite right, but to the left is actually in black and white, and that's intentional that you have this sort of black and white. I know the truth. Truth is easy. Just pick up a book on Scientology, anything LRH has written. He's hundred percent source. If you apply it correctly, it works. And that you are knowledgeable, you know. And then as you work your way to the right a little bit, you kind of get into these spots where you go like, it might be, and you kind of have to allow these seeds to sink in. It might be possible that in some circumstances, parts of Scientology aren't quite true. Maybe it's sort of this like, little slight crevice of a possibility of maybe it's possible, but I don't know. And as you let that kind of find some space and you can ask your questions like, like, why did that person leave? Or why does the tech change if it's hundred percent true? You know, this is a, it's a, it's a good question. It's a very legitimate question, but in Scientology, you don't ask that question. You know, that's not a question you need to ask because what's now is true. And that's all you need to know. But if you let yourself ask yourself, like, wait a minute, but it did change. It's this, and wasn't it true then? How did that? These are legitimate questions that you start sort of pulling a little bit at this. And that, when you get into that spot, you, at least for me, it's like I lost all sense of truth. I don't even know where to think. I'm completely lost, completely confused. And then you start kind of figuring out your way of sort of sorting through, well, maybe there are parts of Scientology that aren't quite true. There are parts that do work, parts that don't work. And I can sort of rebuild a life as I sort of find my way through. 
And then you could sort of begin to get yourself in a place where you could say, well, you know what, L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology do have flaws. And as opposed to just knowing the truth, truth now becomes something I earn or I'm learning truth and it's earned. It isn't something that is just known for certain. Mm-hmm. And it's work with critical thought. And so it's a different way in which I look at the universe and the world around me. It's so much easier to be in the, the left where it's like, oh, I, I know the truth. But now where I believe and I have a richer and more fulfilling life, at least from my accounting, I'm much happier having that sort of ability to sort of decipher through rather than kind of knowing with all thought. Yep. So then, and then and then the next slide, I think it goes into the cave allegory. So as I talked about in the first uh, session that we did was around, I was a philosophy major and this was probably where I was really seeking was this, the cave allegory, which is Plato. And if you don't know the, the cave allegory, it is where there, you're looking at to the, to the left, there are people looking and they see these images on a wall. That's all they see. And that's all they know. And they see these images moving. And with that, they begin to find meaning and they sort of understand everything through the meaning of that, those images. And that's everything that they know. And then as they sort of work away, move themselves through the cave, they could say, oh, wait a minute, there's people holding these, these figures and there's a fire that's casting this light against those figures and those figures are casting shadows. And it's those shadows that those kids, that those people are seeing against the wall. And that's the universe that they've created. And I can realize that actually this is a bigger thing that's creating that universe through this fire and those images. And then as you work your way even further out, you go, oh my gosh, they're in a cave. This whole thing is a cave. There's this whole other world that's out there. And it's sort of this whole other understanding, which for me, this was like a really incredible insight of, and in the way I say it, and I say it to the psychiatrist, I was born and raised, as, as I believe you, Claire and Mark, was effectively right against that wall, looking at that wall and looking at those images. And this is the world and universe that we had made our whole realities out of. And this is what we knew and how we spoke, which got, gave us all these words like amuse and co- cognitions and all that. That's that's everything. And now you start to realize, oh, wait a minute, there's this whole much broader universe and it isn't in this closed place that was created through Scientology or in any other, you know, religious, tightly held organization or cult does the same thing. Yep. It's fascinating. And then the next slide. um, So then as I, I look at it, it is leaving as an iterative. It isn't a just a direct line. You are constantly sort of rethinking like who am i what what is this and what do i believe my wins were real i mean there are things that i can look at the scientology that I actually did appreciate i had a childhood that i really did enjoy but then who are my friends and i through my as i told in my first session about how i lost some dear friends including my dad for a period of time and then you know is it the, the, the scientologist which is kind of tricky or the non-scientologist ex-scientologist who do i work with mm-hmm. and what is safe who knows and i and like that whole language and that whole background and uh, foundation of my childhood. I mean, how do I speak about it? And who, who, what, who knows this whole thing? Who knows this whole process? And then all that, that thought police of like being able to see a psychiatrist, psychologist, how do I release myself of that? And that's, that just takes time. And it's this really, you have to sort of be thoughtful, forgiving, and just really questioning. And you're sort of constantly sort of going through that whole iterative process. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I saw something once where it's like it takes like a dozen years or something for you to finally kind of work your way through or something like that. Yes. And this is my story, which is a lot shared in my first story, which I'm happy to go through again. But you know, it was being in the accident, it was in Sydney. And then I think I kind of go through some of the key highlights, which is was Alan Hubbard perfect? You know, I was in the in the PC uh waiting room and asking people about LRH and everybody had these great stories and did he ever have a bad day? Am I just lucky to be born in Scientology? And yeah, I'm just so gra- I'm just so grateful that you started asking those questions. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I'm I'm grateful as well. It was just that sort of like what is that 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 sort of kind of key question? Like who could LRH be this perfect? And that was one of those legitimate questions. Yeah. And and I put him at a test. You know, imagine you were put to gun to a, a gunpoint. You know, you find you either sacrifice your life or you find five people to die for you. Which do you choose? And then the next slide, I get my first interpretation, which was Obi Wan Kenobi. Darth Vader takes him down. Now he is the spirit that lives on and does all these incredible things for for Scientology. And like, okay, that's my guy. I'm in. 
I'm, I'm, I'm feeling great. Then I put a little bit more thought in the next one, which is, okay, wait a minute, there's the RPF. There's kids out there. There are people, could any of them, if they were approached by LRH, wouldn't they be honored to be one of those five? I mean, I could imagine my dad being one of those five. I mean, it was, yeah. it was sad, but that was the reality. And that was the reality of the church as it had been created, rightfully right. or wrongfully. That was something that made me even think a little bit more and pull on this thread. Yeah. And it was that process that got me to sort of begin to sort of like, wow, maybe there's something different to look at this. Yeah. Yeah. And and back to the cave allegory, it's interesting that, yes, we were born in the cave. And yet we were told by our parents that we were born outside of the cave and the rest of the world was in the cave. <laughs> it was it was interesting to me, like one of the things that I think I talked about in my, my first uh, thing was, was somebody was trying to start his own religion. And yes. what was interesting to me was that you promise the very thing that you're giving away. You're promising freedom, even though you're actually trapping them. Yes. You're having both of those be true. Somebody to be trying to create a cult or L. Ron Hubbard saying, oh, we're giving you the total freedom. But yet, while simultaneously creating all these structures and rules and regimented ways of living that effectively put you in a prison. Yeah. Right. And that but that was what was going on and that, mm -hmm. so it's it's just fascinating to me yep completely so then i went I, my de decompression for scientology i my mom offered to pay for college if i went to unh university of new hampshire it was great nobody heard of scientology so it was fantastic you know i majored in philosophy talked to many about and educated many about scientology i stumbled into the boston church of christ which i talked about in my first session I met a young LRH who was trying to start his own religion. I had my first heartbreak and I tried to see a psychologist, which I talked about last time. And I just couldn't go just because it was just that the thought police that were there, even though I was no longer in Scientology, it was very much there. Yeah. And then, and then this was back in 1921 or not 19, 2021. I went back and brought my family to um, the complex. And this was where, where I knew so well <laughs> And it was like, let me, let me, let me go back there. And so I went back into the LA day and there, there I am walking, ready to go. And they greeted us with very happily to say us. And when we got there and we wrong, probably wrongly, I, we gave, I had my family give our, our actual name. I, I couldn't, this was again, part of my thought police. I should have just sort of made up a name, but instead I said, Sasha's a bit off. And sure enough, they looked me up and then they, they were immediately, I mean, they let us sit in there for a little bit and then they wanted to talk to me specifically and they let me know that I wasn't welcome in this church anymore. I had to talk to the international justice or whatever ethics officer or whatever it was. And I was like, am I an SP? And he said, I can't say. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Um, so it was, it was a, a unique and it was sort of like, welcome. Oh, just kidding. Please go home. I didn't, <laughs> there was no, I didn't get to have, I wanted to just walk the hallways. I, I knew those hallways well. Yeah. Although it's very much changed. I mean, even the, which actually we were in a place where they're showing us videos. Which I think Mark actually created those uh, video halls, um, which was it used to be where there was a, a study room where I would, where I did my student hat. But I knew the I knew the building yeah. At the later that day. I actually um, Grant Curry. Um, he was somebody who was also into Delphi and we had gotten in touch and we so we actually got to see him in his place in Ventura. And he was, there's this picture down in the lower, lower right of him at, at Delphi Academy and the class, I was in upper school, that was middle school. And uh, we had dinner with his kids and his, his kids were with him, but his kid's mom was still very much in and it's, I believe still is. Oh. So was still walking this ground. It was an interesting, even though Grant was, we had great conversations with him, um, but he was clearly, he was very much out, but he was trying to, and had his be able to see his kids and was obviously not wanting to lose the ability to see his kids. So yeah. there were some dynamics there that we were working through. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, this, this is actually a, a very sad um, uh, slide for me. One of the, from two to nine, I had a best friend. His name was Robert Klein and uh, I knew him very well. We hung out a lot. Um, his mom was my godmother as well as his dad, um, June Klein. And June Klein was actually one of the people that helped me. And I referenced her in the first session. Um, and, uh, he, one of the sessions actually in 1921, 
shortly before, like a week before I was to give this talk to the psychiatrist, he had passed. Oh, wow. And it was a very, he had died of alcoholism and he had lost touch. I had, he lived in New Hampshire um, and I had worked hard to get to know him and to reconnect with him. He met my wife once. He gave me his email address and I've looked and I've emailed him many times. He never responded. Uh, I tried many times to see if I could reach him. I couldn't. And it was heartbreaking that he had passed. Um, So that was, that was a very difficult sort of loss for me. And actually when I gave the talk to the psychiatrist, I was literally in tears. I couldn't stop crying and they were kind of like trying to help me like, you know, please understand this was not right. And, you know, Robert deserved everything that you could have given him and all this, they said all the right things. And it was very sad for me, but yeah. I'm that so was, sorry uh, for your loss. That's, that is yeah, tough. One that, yeah, his, his departure was one that he never was able to figure his way out. And that was right. Yeah. There are a lot of movements to expose, which you guys are very much part of. Uh, Leah Remini in the aftermath. And there was Anonymous um, had done a lot. And I know I've been contacted by Anonymous and spoken with some of the folks there. And it's, it's interesting stuff. And, um, and I appreciate that very much. And there's certainly, yeah. it is that like when I tried to expose this young LRH at, in, at UNH um, and I would expose him with the truth. And that was sort of some of these movements are just trying to say, here's what's really going on with Scientology, yeah, which you kind of get to see. Yeah, for sure. Um, so today there are many, and there's probably books in here that are not yet on this, but um a lot of these books are, are really good. I've read many of them, including Bone for Good by, by Mark. Um, and then the the story about, let's see, the, the guy uh, who's at Wright, how, how Wright got it all wrong from going clear, yes. which was a fascinating book. I love that book and I love the documentary from HBO. Um, but, and then their response is somewhat empty. I mean, it's about the unprecedented expansion of Scientology, which is just buildings it isn't necessarily by the the membership, right? And you know, D- David Miscavige's willingness to share, but never grants an interview. Um, I mean, he's had done a couple of them, but he's pretty pretty rare. And they're trying to give all these inaccuracies, but it's just kind of silly. Um, yeah. But there are some incredible books, and I'm grateful to have read them, and I'm glad that they're out there. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then my views on religion and psychiatry today. So what's true for you is true for you. Still, it's something. It's a big Scientology concept. I appreciate it. I still carry it. I was become mostly agnostic. I I, I believe I like to believe in some higher being, a God of some sort. I can't think of it in the classical sense of like some guy with a big beard and all that and with the clouds and whatnot. I don't think of it in that way, but I do think of this larger universe that sort of has some guiding ways in which we operate. I've seen psychiatrists we talked about earlier. My views on psychiatric drugs have evolved. Actually, one of those things was that when I was in one of the jobs that I got, I got, I ended up in biotech, which was just quite literally by accident. But it was incredible industry for me to learn a lot. And I helped with hemophiliac drugs. um, And I worked in big companies like Wyeth, which is now Pfizer. But then uh, uh, a while back, one of the companies I joined was a company called Alchemy's. And Alchemy's, the drugs that they make are psychiatric drugs. Hmm. Literally during the interview process, they said, we're making a drug for schizophrenia. I didn't even know what the word schizophrenia meant hmm. when I heard it. But I was in an interview process. So I'm here to sell my sell myself of having these capabilities of being good at helping people work together and do all this great stuff. And I must have done a great job because I got a job. I got, <laughs> I got, I got employed, which was fantastic. Yeah. And then I'm going in, I go check in for my first day of, of work. And they said, he said, okay, we want you to talk to the head of marketing about, about this new, um, the new drug we're working on uh, for psych- schizophrenia. And I'm like, I still hadn't looked up what schizophrenia meant. <laughs> and so then she goes and she talks to me and she meets with me and says, yeah, so here are the psychiatrists that, we, that we're promoting to. And here's where we're doing it. And I was listening. I'm like, oh, my God. I actually just joined hell <laughs> in the world that I knew from Scientology and here, I mean, it was like one of those things, like I would say, oh, I'll always tell a psychiatrist, I'll never take psychiatric drugs. But now I've actually found myself where this is my livelihood of me actually now needing to promote to psychiatrists about psychiatric medicine. Interesting. And I have to actually somehow make myself okay with this in a pretty fast period of time. And actually, the woman, Saru, and she, uh, I mean, if she ever sees this video, she'll get a kick out of it because she, she was very much there 
where I had to, she was showing me all this, this material. And I said, sure, I just have to stop you right now. And she said, what? I have to let you know that I was born and raised in the Church of Scientology. And this is like, um, this is really quite doing a number on me. He says, okay, that's fascinating. But, you know, we got to talk to you about, about this whole thing. And I'm like, okay, great. And so it just was this sort of weird sort of thing. And I remember having to sort of, I went home, I told Helen, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just joined. I, I just figured I could sort of walk the line, but now I'd like, this is where I'm making my money. This is like my career. Yep. And I had to sort of come to Germany. I met psychiatrists that worked for Alchemy. He's really nice people. And I'd gone to conferences of psychiatrists. Again, really nice. These were honest working people. And it was like, okay. So that was just a, it was a whole mind kind of cluster for me to work my way through that to a point where I could actually be okay. And I had to do it within a couple of days. Cause I remember my boss at the time said, are you okay working for this company? Given yep. where, and I, I said, yes, I am. And I, I had to make that okay because and otherwise I'm going to just find a, another job really quick. And, and it, I'm grateful for it. And it is, Alchemy is a great company. The CEO is phenomenal and all of the people there. And I still have very good friendships with a number of people there. And I, and I hope they're, they're successful and they are doing meaningful things for people with schizophrenia and with bipolar. And they've got some medicines that are there to really help. And so that's, but, and that's sort of how my, before I had gone to Alchemy's, I probably wouldn't have thought I was going to join a company uh, where it's promoting psychiatric drugs. I wouldn't have willfully done that. Yeah. But I just, by the way of me kind of sort of following this, okay, here's an interview. Let me just do it. Let me see if I can get the job. Didn't know that word. Now I know schizophrenia quite well and I understand all the different elements of it, but it was just was like, wow. So anyway, interesting. That was, uh, <laughs> it's funny how our life paths take very interesting twists and turns and, but here you are today. So that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> even if, even if it was like being thrown in the deep end of the pool and being told to start swimming, probably. <laughs> yeah, it was, there was a lot because everything I knew was, oh, psychiatrics are, are bad. And I had to just really filter through that. I mean, yeah. that was all a lot of thought police that very much existed. And then being faced with reality. I mean, none of it came to pass. I mean, none of this were like these psychiatrists really don't, they just don't have a big thing on Scientology. It right. just isn't there. Yeah. But that is a manufactured reality that's in the cave that is very real and really presented to us, but it doesn't exist outside of that cave. Wow. Yep. Fascinating. And then, so this is where I talk to psychiatrists about what do you, how do you approach a Scientologist? You know, like recognize the crusade, you know, they're clearing the planet. There's all this, you know, we're the elite. They have all these incredible feelings. They have, there's an extended period of de decompression. There are a lot of thought police that are being filtered through. Um, you can use Scientology concepts. That would be like, what's true for you is true for you. That was one that I really appreciated. Um, I certainly would have veered away from any psychology speak. I would have wanted more Scientology speak. Mm. Um, and then foster questions with support. What is total freedom? Are the times tech didn't work even when it was correctly applied? I mean, some of those things that are real questions are legitimate or was LRH really perfect or was it okay that the tech changed and yet it was true then and it even changed uh, true after it changed? How did that, how do you reconcile that? Yeah. And the don't for a psychiatrist, don't say you're a psychologist, psychiatrist, <laughs> just leave that in the down low. They do not need to know that is that's negative credibility. Yep. You could say you're an artist. You could say any number of things, but don't say you're a psychiatrist. I don't know why you'd say an artist unless you are an artist, but, um, and don't prescribe psychiatric drugs. I would, if somebody said, oh, we want to give you this, whatever it is, um, I would have said, no, I have no interest and don't discount beliefs that have been valuable. And for me, I do have a lot of valuable beliefs. I mean, like skipped gradient or amused, you know, those are things are using a demo kit, lack of mass. I mean, those are ones I, I, I can appreciate. Those are from the, the study technology or they call it technology, just concepts. And then don't project an, an agenda to get you out. Let, like one of the things that for my godmother, who was really good, she really let me, and she wasn't a psychiatrist, but in letting me sort of, sort of showing me like barefaced Messiah and then say, this is your road. You're welcome to go back in the church. There's no judgment for me. And that was so useful to me. That was so like, I, I have freedom here. And she remained a safe person for me 
to talk to, even though I don't know if I wanted to or not, but I knew that she wasn't out. She didn't have an agenda to get me out, even though she might have secretly did have that agenda, but not one that I was aware of and I didn't need to be aware of. So Right. No, that totally makes sense. And then, and then this is other concepts, such as like Scientology, the the movie. So the Truman show, which somebody said, Oh, you got to watch the Truman show. And certainly sure enough, watching the Truman show, it certainly felt like my own childhood of being sort of in this world. If this is the universe that, you know, and then there's a little like, wait a minute, that seems a little off. And you can see Jim Carrey as he's working his way through, he's sort of like, wait a minute, that's just, no, that's what is this? And you're sort of trying to sort of, get these thoughts. And meanwhile, this is overlord trying to keep them in, in, you know, the Truman show. So that, that to me was fascinating. I mean, and I've heard that the, the author of that or the writer of that movie did base some of that off of Scientology, but I, I don't know how true that is. The master, which was really, I mean, Seymour, Philip Seymour Hoffman, he nailed LRH's voice. Totally. I mean, he just did it so well. I was like, Gosh, that was just brought me right back in student hat listening to these tapes. That was LRH. He just funneled him completely. Yeah. Um, the Joaquin Phoenix character wasn't one that I necessarily identified with or felt familiarity with in Scientology, but it was certainly I've heard the argument that the two characters are were two different characters of LRH or something like that. Hmm. But certainly it was a de- depiction of Scientology being created. Um, in its early days and going yeah. clear, which I mentioned earlier, phenomenal. And then actually somebody from anonymous told me about the prophet, which is a movie, which I never saw, but it exists and it was shut down pretty, pretty by Scientology, but it has a whole story of getting out of it. I haven't seen it, but um, yeah, no, I haven't heard of that one. I will definitely check. That yeah. I've looked for it. I can't find it. Oh. Then these are other kind of realities of this is sort of the other, you know, the images that I had at the start of this presentation were these sort of iconic views these are other views that are actually kind of more that are certainly in the, the that exist. And these are R of LRH kind of figuring this out. He, he did a lot of drugs. He did all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and then this light, this electronic lie detector, which is some early e-meter, which he probably based the e-meter off of. I mean, he was, these are just sort of depictions of to make him what I was looking for in my initial journey. Let me know that he was real. And he sure enough, he was a real person and he was yeah. flawed and he was, he was living it. And it was part of it was Scientology, but he created as a result of all of that. Right. And then, no, oh, that, that's it. And then I sort of right. show, you know, I got through to the other side and I perhaps a little wiser through it all. And hopefully nice. for all the psychiatrists as well. And usually at the end, I usually we were able to do it. Uh, they asked me some questions about, I, you know, and they'll, they'll ask like, what, what do people think about drugs or I can't think of any, but they, there are questions that they would ask and I usually would answer and, and be a good conversation about that. So anyway, nice. that's my story. Awesome. What a, a, a really good overview and presentation. Um, and like I said, thank you so much for sharing that. I just thought when you told me about this and we went through it, I thought, you know, what a, what a great conversation to kind of just as a summary overview and, you know, added benefit. This is a presentation you've been doing to psychiatrists. So uh, just that added layer was fascinating to me. Yeah, it was. Yeah, no, there, there was, I remember there was once a psychiatrist said, wow, we would love to have, because they, they have had psychiatrists run into people in the ER that were Scientologists and they were needing a psych- psychiatric counsel, co- consult. And they said, boy, it would be really helpful to have somebody like you, like myself, who could speak the language and could understand it. So it's it fascinating. But anyway, you know, happy yeah. to have helped. And hopefully it helped many others. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Absolutely. And hopefully we should. I, I will we'll talk again about um, potentially doing another conversation about your letters with a Scientologist, because, um, you know, I, I, I would say a question that we get a lot is how to help people get out, how to to open, you know, start that process of um, waking them up to be able Mm -hmm. to consider other options and that there is life outside of Scientology. So that's where, to me, it's always valuable um, to anyone that has loved ones in Scientology, like what, what can they do? So, yeah. Yeah. No, happy to help. Anytime, anytime. It's my pleasure. Awesome. All righty. Well, thank you. And until next time, uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks for watching. If you'd like to help support the channel, 
feel free to check out our merch link in the description below. We have Hail Xenu and Xenu is my homeboy and BFG branded shirts, mugs, sweatshirts, and mouse pads and all sorts of other things that help us keep bringing you new content every week. You can also pick up a copy of my book, Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology, in hardback, Kindle, and Audible versions. And there's also a link where you can uh, go to our podcast and uh, download that as well. And if you'd like to watch another video on the BFG channel, you can click on this video here, or you can click on this video here. And it also helps us out a great deal if you click on the subscribe button down here. Thanks a lot. Until next time.